You know what time it is. It is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer than when we became believers. The night is far gone. The day is near. Lay aside the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. The commandments are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the word of the Lord. I grew up in a family that didn't want to give up on one day and they didn't want to start the next. They stayed up late and then they didn't want to get up. I remember all those years of catching a school bus, just running to catch the school bus because I'd stayed up a little too late the night before. I sleep well. I almost never wake up before the alarm goes off. And when it does, I push the button over and I go into the bathroom and start the shaving and getting ready for work. Gail and I do not wake up in the morning and say, How are you? Maybe after a little orange juice we say, You okay? I'm fine. <laughs> so one of these radios with the snooze button would never work for me. I don't want to be partially waked up and go back to sleep for 10 minutes and then wake up again. No, just when it's time, ring the bell, I'll get up and go to work. This passage was written by Paul. Scholars believe it was written in the year 60 of that first century of the Common Era. Scholars believe it was the last thing Paul wrote that we have. We believe Paul and Peter were put to death in the persecutions of Caesar Nero, probably in the year 65. So about five years before his death, when Paul has been a believer that God had finally sent the long-awaited Messiah, he still believed Jesus was coming back. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, surely next year, surely next year. Well, it's been 2,000 years. But we anticipate what God did 2,000 years ago. He does again and again, not in the same way, of course. There was only one Jesus of Nazareth. There will never be another just like him. But what God was doing in and through him, God is willing to do again and again and again. Let's take a look. Number one, you know what time it is. That's what Paul wrote. You remember, those of you who've been in serious Bible studies, there are two words for time in Greek. As they had four words for love in Greek, they had two words for time. One is the word chronos. There are a few watchmakers in the world who have such a splendid reputation that they can call their watches chronometers because they keep such accurate time. That's not the word Paul uses here. He doesn't really mean it's 1123 or it's 1138 or something. No, this is the word kairos, and kairos means this is a special moment. Whatever the watch says, whatever the clock says, this is a special moment. It's time for you to wake up and be aware. I've mentioned the Reverend Larry Holland to you before. Larry grew up out in the western part of our state of Oklahoma. He went to uh, Phillips University when it was still in Enid, Oklahoma, after graduation, he went on to our St. Paul Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, came back to be a pastor in Oklahoma for a brief time. But he had seen the devastation done by tornadoes out in the western part of the state. He saw what it meant 
when good people rushed in after the storm to try to set things as nearly right as possible. That's what he felt God calling him to do. Go to the great disaster places of the world and try to make things better. So he worked for years for our Board of Global Ministries. He has written about a day when he was in the capital in Ethiopia. He said, I was standing on the street corner there when I saw a little boy hanging upside down in a tree out in the middle of that busy street. Yeah, it was just a little median, he said, a small tree. I'd guess this little boy was maybe 12 years old. He had his legs looped over the lower limb of that tree, just hanging upside down, sort of like a cocoon. I figured he was one of those orphan children. There have been so many tribal wars in that part of Africa. There are many, many orphans living on the streets. This little boy seemed to have nothing else to do but hang upside down on a limb. Finally, he seemed to tire of that. He dropped down out of the tree, made his way across that busy street. He had seen another little boy coming out of an alley. I don't know if they had known each other before or not, but it took no time at all till they were into it with each other. And the other little boy picked up a sharp rock and cracked him right between his eyes and blood started running down his nose. A police officer saw what had happened, so he walked over with a very old antiquated rifle and hit them both in the back with the butt of the rifle. They both went down on their faces. So the kid who had come out of the alley ran back into the alley when he could, and the little boy from the tree went back to the tree, climbed up in it, hung upside down from the lowest limb. I could still see the blood on his nose. I made my way through that busy traffic. I said to this kid, I have a ticket for a hot lunch. I know a safe place you can sleep tonight. And he got down out of that tree. Advent, Larry Holland writes, is about a God who loves his world, messy as it is, and keeps coming again and again into that messy world, begging those who will hear him to help him set this creation right again. Number two, ah, the kingdom is nearer than when we first believed. Paul was an optimist all the way, maybe next month, maybe next year. But that was the message Jesus preached too, you remember? The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say that after Jesus was baptized, he began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Paul says it's nearer than it was when first you believed. When first these pagan, heathen, polytheistic Gentiles had come to faith in Israel's God through the preaching of Paul about Jesus Christ, they'd been baptized. It's nearer now. He means there's progress being made. Surely there's progress being made. Surely the world is a better place than 20 years ago or 30 or 40 50 years ago. Deborah Douglas has written that when she was 10 years old, things were going pretty well at her house. And then her mother was involved in a horrible auto accident that left her face and her personality changed for the rest of her life. She said, my father didn't handle this disappointment very well. He just started working longer and longer hours. Even though I was only 10, I could tell that he was stopping somewhere after work to brace himself up because he always reeked of alcohol. And when he and my mother would get into it, when he finally did get home, he'd take three or four more drinks and then pass out. 
So needless to say, I spent a lot of time in my room, she said. I read my books over and over and over. These were books my mother and father had bought me when things were better, many of them nursery tales from when I was younger. I read again and again about a little boy and a little girl wandering deeper and deeper into the woods, dropping little breadcrumbs to help them find their way back. And when they turned to go back, the breadcrumbs had been eaten. About a wicked old woman who wanted to get them into a hot oven and roast them. But in every one of these stories, there was always a fairy godmother. There was always somebody who came to read that story again before I went to sleep. And the next night I'd read another story about another child in distress and someone who came to help. When I got bigger, she said, I enjoyed reading history in school. I got interested in Christianity. I discovered that the earliest Christians were right there around Israel, first of all, Palestine, ancient Judea, that it was in the eastern part of the Mediterranean that those first Christians later came to be known as the Orthodox ones, Greek Orthodox and Syrian Orthodox and Russian Orthodox. I discovered that those people got in touch with a, a greater power than a fairy godmother by meditating on the iconography in their church. Now, in all Orthodox churches, there's supposed to be at least six beautiful icons. Holy Mother, Jesus Christ, and the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've been in Russian Orthodox churches. We've been in Syrian Orthodox churches. We've been in Greek Orthodox churches. Mary, Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Deborah writes, I went to Orthodox churches to learn how to pray, to sit quietly and meditate, looking into the face of Mary, looking into the face of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. As I continued to read, she said, I discovered that Christianity moved westward. When Caesar Constantine embraced Christianity, the Roman church was off and running, and that for all these hundreds of years, Roman Christians had learned to pray by shuffling little beads across their hands. I sought help. I went to a church and I asked, will you teach me how to pray the rosary? I got a set of those little beads and I let them pass through my hand. I learned to pray the rosary. You see, what I discovered was there is help. For every child in distress, there is help. For every confused teenager, there is help. For every disillusioned adult, far bigger than a fairy godmother, there is a God who keeps breaking in to his creation, trying to get things right. Number three, put off things of darkness, Paul said. Some writers think pajamas here. Others say, I don't think so. Paul wasn't talking about your pajamas. Paul's talking about your party clothes, the ones you wore last night when you really messed up. In fact, he goes on to tell you all these things you need to get rid of, and these things he tells you to get rid of are things you did last night when it was really dark. 
the way John in his gospel says, people love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. They run from the light like cockroaches because their deeds are evil. Paul is saying, put off those things. Put off those deeds of evil, of the dark. Get out of the bed and get rid of those night clothes of yours. Eileen Snaza has written that her husband, who had been battling severe kidney disease, died right at Christmas. All of their closest friends and neighbors rushed in to help her and the children. They brought food, uh, they sent cards, they had flowers, they attended the service. Now she said we were 12 months later, it was December again, and everybody had forgotten, except us. Christmas was coming, and we had no daddy, no husband. She said, one Saturday morning, early December, I just didn't want to get out of bed. So I didn't. I just lay there with my cover pulled up under my chin. I could hear my boys downstairs, from teenagers down to a seven-year-old. Finally, when I didn't get up and I didn't go downstairs, there was a knock on my door. The little one, I had a feeling the bigger ones might have put him up to it, said, Mom, we want to get out the Christmas tree today. And I called back, Well, your daddy always did that. It's up in the attic. You have to put all the branches into the main stick. You can probably do that. And again, the little one, maybe with some prompting, said, we want to get a real one this year, Mom, a real one. And then one of the older boys said, I read in the paper where they're selling them. You can chop one down yourself, a really fresh one. Whatever, she said, whatever, I don't care. And the house grew quiet. A couple of hours later, they were back. I heard them rummaging around up in the attic. I knew they were looking for decorations. I didn't want to get up, so I didn't. And a couple of hours after that, there was a knock at the door. And that little one, the seven-year-old, said, Mom, you need to see the tree. It smells really good. And finally, she said, something told me, get up, get up. And I went downstairs. It was beautiful. And it smelled wonderful. And as I gathered one boy after another into my arms, I knew that though our lives had been forever changed, there was a God whose love had never changed. Ever. Number four. Put on the armor of light, it says. One of my favorite scholars in this is an old Scottish scholar. Dr. C.K. Barrett from the last century. And Dr. Barrett says this word for armor is not only of defense, it's not only about a shield maybe, about special body plates, but these are offensive weapons as well. That is, they're things you need to be doing. Like a mighty army marches the church of God, so to speak. There are things we can do to help God get this creation back into proper shape. There are needs we can meet. There are people whose lives we can make richer and fuller and more meaningful, hopeful. We can make a difference. But 
if you were reading along with me, I always sort of glance over the top of my Bible as I read, and I could see some of you sort of do one of these when I read the last verse because it's not right at the end of today's lection. It's just before it. This verse. The commandments are summed up in this word. Do agape, love your neighbor as you want your neighbor to do agape for you. You see, none of the Gospels had been written when Paul wrote. None. And yet later, Matthew and Luke would tell us that people came to Jesus saying, which one of all these commandments is the most important? And he said, well, the most important is the Shema from the scroll of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. You must have no other God but him. You must love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they, second, sort of like the first, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from the scroll of Numbers from the Torah. You see, Paul had been taught by Gamaliel, one of the most famous rabbis in Jerusalem in that first century. Good Jews and good Christians understood the Torah is summed up in this verse. All of the Torah, all of the prophets, somehow, if God's children just start doing to the other what they want to be done to them, if they were willing to put themselves out for the other the way they would like the other to put himself, herself out for them, creation would certainly be better just right away. Recently, I had ordered a book about Christmas, looking to see if there were any new ideas, any new stories I might share with you. And in this book, there was an old story. Dr. Norman Vincent Peale told it. They called it a golden oldie or something. 1967, that's 45 years ago. Dr. Norman Vincent Peale was drawing the biggest crowds in New York City to his Marble Collegiate Church. He told this story. It was a teenage girl who'd come to New York from Switzerland. She was an exchange student. She had come to be immersed in the English language for a whole year before continuing her education in Switzerland. She had been adopted for that one year by a family living in Manhattan in a fairly nice apartment in Manhattan. And when the Christmas season came, this family had a big, beautiful Christmas tree, and every day new presents arrived. They were just being stacked up around the tree. She was an exchange student. She didn't have much money. She knew there was no way she could buy anything that looked as impressive as these boxes looked. She was pondering that one afternoon after school as she walked a little way from the apartment when she saw two Salvation Army bell ringers and a kettle. Ah, she knew about the Salvation Army. They have it in Switzerland. Gail and I one day were walking down a street in Paris. We heard a band. We thought maybe a parade of some sort. We waited for it. It was the Salvation Army band. They were marching right down the street. They came into a little plaza there and set up all their instruments and kept playing. They started playing hymns, the kind we sing in July. People were singing them in French. It was fun. She knew about the Salvation Army. So she walked over to one of these fellows ringing the bell, and she said, I have a present here. I want it to go to somebody who really needs it. 
he asked, what is it? She said, I went in that store down there. It's a, it's a baby, a baby dress, a little girl. I don't know, a year old maybe. They said about a year old. Do you know anybody like that? I said, oh, yeah, I know a lot of somebody's like that. She said, would you take this to one of them? He said, no, I think you should do that. Do you have money for a cab? She said, well, if it didn't go too far, he said, okay, let you and me deliver your present. So they got in the back seat of a cab. It wasn't so very far. He told the cab driver, pull over. But on the way, they'd been discussing, where are you from, Switzerland? How long are you here? One year. I'm an exchange student. Where do you live? She was telling him and so on. And finally, when they got there, she said, I, I, I can't do this. Would you do it for me, please? Please. He said, okay. So he took this wrapped box and he got out and he went and delivered it. He came back and said, okay, job done. You made a mother very happy. This baby, not so big yet, but one day it'll be really happy too to know you brought this pretty dress. Said to the cab driver, would you take us back now, please? And when he got them back where they had first gotten in, this young lady from Switzerland asked, uh, how much do I owe you? And the cab driver said, uh, I've been paid. Thank you very much. 